Hey there, this is Damien Blinkensop with The Quantified Body. In this episode, we're going to make it practical. In a lot of the interviews to date, we're talking with experts about tools that we can use to improve our biology and how we can track them to make sure, track those results to make sure that we're actually getting those results. That's the goal of this podcast. I actually want you to do this and be able to do this at home and easily and make it really accessible for you. So today we're going to kind of take the next step. We're going to talk to someone who's a practitioner, basically who's doing this kind of stuff at home. We call them N equals one experiments or biohacking experiments if you want. And his name is Bob Troyer, also known as Quantify Bob. He has a blog where he publishes all his experiments and the things he's been up to over the last few years. And some of the topics he's covered, which are interesting for a lot of people, I think, is number one, The Bulletproof Diet, which he's been on for 92 years, I think. And that's a book that just came out recently. It's been around for a while. It's very popular now. So I think what you can get from this is what kind of impact does it make on your biology? Really, does it improve your biology? This is what we want at the end of the day from a diet we're going to follow. Intermittent fasting. Obviously, there's a lot of hype around that lately and the benefits it can have. And there's a lot of studies to show that it does have a lot of benefits. But what does it actually do to someone's biology? So we can talk about that and caveats, the downsides potentially. Also talking about things like oxaloacetate and chronic health issues and resolving those. I think another important thing you're going to get from this podcast is best practices and tips on how to do this in real life. Bob and I have both been doing this for a while. And we have a discussion about what the best practice tips are, what things we found and how to go about this in a way that works for you and it just gets done. So that's today's episode. I hope you enjoy it. It's a little bit of a change. I want to make sure this is a really practical podcast with actionable items. And hopefully you'll get that from today's episode. Let me know in the comments if you want more of this. I'd love to hear your ideas. And if this is the kind of episode you want, I can look for more guys like Bob who've done a lot of this stuff and can bring this practical perspective to you. In order to get the show notes, the MP3 download and the transcript and all of that stuff, you can go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash episodes and just click the episode that you want there and grab the show notes. You can also get the show notes in your email inbox every time an episode comes out automatically without thinking about it. If you go to thequantifiedbody.net forward slash newsletter and pop your email in there. And like I say, every time an episode comes out, you'll get the show notes, you'll get notified and you can pretty much forget about it, which is always a good thing. Enjoy today's interview. The Quantified Body. New technologies are bringing us more and better data on our bodies every day. This data promises to help us make better decisions for better health, higher performance, less disease, and greater longevity. In the Quantified Body, we explore this promise to find out where it is creating real-world results, improving bodies, and improving lives. Hey there, Bob. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So... How did you get into all of this quantified self, QS, biohacking, and N equals one experiments? Is this something you've been doing for a while? Give us a quick background on what led you to this. Sure. I'm very different than some of your past guests in that I'm more like your typical listener. I'm not an expert in a certain field. I'm, I'm an entrepreneur who's been working with emerging technology for about the last 20 years. And I just naturally had this curious mind. And even back to the time I was a little kid, it was always about taking things apart and figuring out how things work or putting them back together in a different way. So for me, going back to my teenage years and into college, I was an athlete. So I was always tracking aspects of workouts and training and diet, trying to figure out what had an effect on certain performances and just general um, improvements, whether it's trying to gain weight or strength or run faster. As I got older, 
out of college and began, you know, kind of joining the workforce in the real world, I never really got too out of shape in terms of putting on tons of weight and, or anything like that. But I definitely wanted to kind of get back <laughs> into a better shape and I experimented with different diets and training. And again, I was logging a lot of these meals, workouts, and, and, and just trying to understand those effects. And so really, it was you went from tracking for performance to tracking to kind of getting back to a certain state. And now as you get older, you're really looking to do it from the standpoint of longevity and maintenance. Because like, for example, I had a program I did 15 years ago where I, you know, I gained a bunch of muscle, put on some weight, but it was just from a lifestyle perspective, I couldn't maintain it from playing other sports. But from a QS perspective, so I was always tracking everything, uh, whether it was notebooks, spreadsheets, et cetera. And about maybe like five years ago, I, I found a group of folks. I, I'm in New York City. I found some other like-minded people who are starting a meetup uh, around Quantified Self, and I had never really heard the term before. But when I got together with these folks and they were exchanging stories, and I was like, oh, these are my people, I didn't realize there were other people doing things similar to me in terms of trying to really track and understand and then optimize areas of their life. And so for me, it really opened the door to this And from the standpoint of even though we were doing this on ourselves or to own N equals one experiments and tracking, when you're meeting with other people, you can share tips and advice and stories and you can really connect around that. So you have quantified self and then you've got like biohacking. And they're very similar, but they're also different in ways. So biohacking, there are people who might be in that school of thought who aren't necessarily quantified self people. They're just looking to somehow manipulate or get an advantage or, or optimize a, a biological impact, whereas quantified self people might be tracking non-physical elements of their lives. So I find those groups sort of overlap. Um, and for me, it was through some of the conferences that were out there, meeting people at whether it's the first quantified self conference, there have been several biohacking conferences. My interest in this has purely been from really trying to uncover and understand what makes me tick and then figure out ways to optimize and improve it. I'm the smarter, faster, more, you know, more intelligent than anyone out there. I'm definitely not. And you know, I'm still dealing with a number of issues like lingering infection, health issues. But I think it's trying to achieve that state of being optimal is, is just something we can all strive for, whether or not we can actually ever get to it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And how old are you, just to give a bit of context? Uh, just got into my 40s. Okay, cool. That's pretty much the same place as I am. That's interesting. Uh, so just to give you a background a bit in terms of your education and your work, because I, I think that may have had an influence. I came from a business background and uh, a lot of finance and then management consulting, which is a lot of analytics. So I was doing a lot of this stuff in kind of my work. And just like you, it naturally filtered into fitness and then it started evolving into longevity and uh, also into health issues when I got some health issues. So I'm just wondering how that compares to your background and if you think it influenced it, maybe your studies or your career, because some people at home may be thinking, well, I don't have a degree in maths or I don't have an education in consulting or analytics or anything. But I think anyone pretty much from any kind of background can get into this stuff. And at quantified self meetings, uh, you see a big variety of different people. Yeah. So my background, um, I went to school for engineering. So I definitely have a technical background. I, I've been programming since I was a, probably nine, 10 years old, just writing my own programs. Back in those days, you had to kind of make your own games. <laughs> Didn't really exist. So I have a technical background. Um, that helps me from the standpoint of I can sort of figure out a way to solve something, but I don't have a, a data analytics background by any means. And even from a scientific background, when we talk about experiments, there's a debate about the experiments we're doing, are they following traditional experimental design? How, you know, how accurate is the data? And I think when we're talking about our own N equals one experiments, you have to sort of say, well, look, I'm trying to structure this and control it in a certain way, but it's for me. It's not, I'm not trying to release this in an academic paper. Right, right. 
Let's take a step back. N equals one experiments. I'm not sure if we brought up the term before on the actual podcast, but basically it's just an experiment just on one person. It doesn't mean that it's scientifically applicable to the whole population as in the experiments and studies that are typically done. They're trying to extrapolate things to say they apply to more than one person and they can be used. But with an N equals one experiment, you're just trying to see what works for you. Is that how you sum it up or would you look at it a bit differently? Exactly. So we could run the same experiment, for example, and you, your result can be different than mine. It doesn't mean that either are wrong. It just means that we're all we're individuals and our results. It applies to me, you know, to ourselves. And we go after it a different way in terms of how we want to improve or optimize something. Right. Right. So the reason I contacted you, you've already done a lot of different interesting experiments, basically. Um, and you put those up on your blog. So I wanted to talk about a few of those. Where would you like to start? Which one was your first major experiment? Was it the diet or the, the blood glucose? So, yeah, so sort of my entry point into quantified self and biohacking was starting a blog to essentially just share the information I was collecting. I thought maybe it could help other people or inspire them, get feedback on what I was doing. So one of the early experiments I, I was running was around diet. I hate to use the word diet because <laughs> not, I wasn't trying to lose weight. Right, right. Uh, again, being an entrepreneur... Uh, CEO of a company, being very active, playing sports, working out. I got to a point a couple years ago where I just was basically exhausted. Like I was just broken down. Even though like physically I look, <laughs> I was in shape, I was succeed, I was being successful in my work. Everything was great. And I couldn't figure out, I just wanted to curl up in a ball on the weekend and just like do nothing. And so I was looking at, at my diet, what I thought was a healthy diet, meaning it was like lots of protein through like chicken and low fat and lots of pasta and carbs and all of that. And it was working for me, but as I delved into sort of uh, looking at different diets, and this is when the, like the paleo movement was taking off, and people were looking at rethinking the traditional food pyramid and saying, really, you need to incorporate more healthy saturated fats and, and quality proteins. And so for me, that was kind of the beginnings of that experiment. And I actually posted about it before I had even started. I was like, I'm going to try this, and I'm going to post about my first 30 days just to get a quick, because you, you're not going to see huge changes, but I think even just seeing how you feel as a result of making a minor change and, you know, and if it didn't work, I would just have stopped and done something else. Right. So you set a period of 30 days and you selected a diet. How did you go about choosing the diet? Was it just one you were drawn to, or did you, were you looking for something specific, very different from the diet you currently have? And, you know, I don't really like the word diet either. I think we should really call it nutrition, which is more about what it's about, but that's where it is. Everyone says diet. So how did you go about selecting the diet and the period of 30 days? So in terms of the diet, um, I was researching, again, the sort of the paleo movement and let's call it nutritional plans <laughs> related to the, the paleo movement. And I happened to come across, I actually ran into the Bulletproof diet is one that I think a lot of people are talking about these days, which is just a uh, sort of tweaked version of a paleo diet. Um, I had come encountered Dave through various conferences and all of that. And he was, he himself was running a podcast. So he was talking a lot about the principles behind the diet and the logic behind certain choices and, and how you structure it all. And um, for me, that's what attracted me was it was sort of mapped out. There was a lot of information that he had put together. And again, it's similar to a paleo diet. And, and I said, okay, well, let's look at you know how I'm going to change what I'm eating in terms of like incorporating the protein, even protein sources. So we're talking about grass-fed, grass-finished beef, lamb, getting adequate seafood, um, cutting out sugars, pretty much all grains, no gluten, which interestingly, I realized through blood testing that I had an allergen test and it kind of showed that I, apparently I was allergic to wheat and barley, not chronically in a bad way, but there was an allergic reaction that kind of went up there. And beer was something that's like my favorite thing in the world. 
So just even having to start making changes about what I was eating and people were like, they thought it was like I was punishing myself, but I was like, well, no, I'm eating like this big, great, awesome steak and I'm having a butter on it and I'm eating tons of veggies and oils. So, and a diet itself, that's the nutritional side of it. And then, you know, there's also exercise and how do you support that? Um, going to the gym six days a week, working out for two hours a day, that can also contribute to sort of being exhausted. I know you've done podcasts on HRV and, and things like overtraining, and that's very common. And, and so by changing a workout program as well to something that's more high intensity but shorter, you can get a lot of the benefits out of. Mm. Did you do both of these things at the same time? And did you do some kind of control before? Did you took your blood markers before based on your initial diet? which was the, what you're talking about before. It was the, the kind of low-fat chicken, whole, whole food pastors, and, you know, kind of the typical bodybuilder. I guess I'd call it a typical bodybuilder diet. It sounded a bit like it. Yeah, so I had been getting regular blood work prior to doing this. So I had some data, not like every month or three months. It was six or 12 months, but I, I had a good baseline. And then... Mm. Where did you get this data from? Where did you go to get your labs? How did you do that? Did you do it for your doctor or some service or... A little of everything. The older blood work was tied to uh, past doctor visits, physicals. I, you know, they weren't as comprehensive, but they had some of the basic markers in there. Before I started with the diet, I did a round of blood work. I actually used uh, so there's a number of online services that kind of facilitate your blood testing. You can basically go online, buy this sort of package, then they will set up an appointment. It's supposed, depending on what state you live in. Some of it you can do from home. Some you know, you can mail it in. Some you go to a lab and draw it and sends it to them. Uh, so I used a service called Inside Tracker early on, and so that was for part. I think some of the before blood work, and it, it's so that's very similar to Wellness FX is the other well known one. I think those are the two major ones in the US. There's just a new one in the UK that's trying to follow the same example. But basically, they're self service lab services which try to give you a bit of package of advice with it as well, right? Um, but you don't necessarily have to buy that package of advice. Yeah. So they'll take your results. And when you go to look at them online, they'll give you suggestions that, you know, for example, if a marker is out of optimal range, it'll say, you don't want to consider eating more leafy greens or some dietary choices. So what's good about those services is they give you those ranges, which are a bit more functional generally than others, like compared to the standard, if you go to LabCorp or some of the standard things that the ranges they give are probably wider in most cases. Is that what you've experienced? I know World FX try to keep it a little bit tighter. Yeah, I think, and that's the big difference between when you talk about traditional medicine, functional medicine. I mean, the reference ranges are typically built around our population, which is a generally unhealthy population. So you might be in the optimal range for the general population, but you're not really. So something like a vitamin D level, you might be considered in range, but like a functional doctor might say, no, you want to be like way higher than that. The reference ranges, for some degree, inside tracker wellness effects, if you're switching to like a paleo diet, you might see your total cholesterol number jump up and it'll kind of go in the red. But a functional doctor will be like, that's not important. What we actually want to look at is your LDL cholesterol. And in particular, you get into particle size analysis of it. And that's what- so, I mean, this is where even when you do have a service like wellness effects or inside tracker, where they're trying to provide this online information and support for your understanding of the markers, it's not necessarily going to give you the best responses. There are basically more complex situations like you brought up where you can have high cholesterol and it's not an issue at all. And it's just based on the type of diet you're having. But in other scenarios, it might be a problem. I'm sure inside track is the same, like wellness effects is like, oh, you know, your LDL is too high. But in certain conditions, it's not necessarily so. So this is where it becomes really helpful if you have a functional medicine practitioner working with you or someone who's aware of this stuff. No, exactly. And I also think not to single out like those services, but I think any service that's providing just a siloed snapshot of your overall lifestyle health 
they don't have access to all of the information. So they can show your blood work, but they don't have like, for example, your genetic information from 23andMe or something. So maybe there's an issue there that's genetic versus tied to a diet or having access to other blood works great, but I support it with other types of testing that maybe something that was picked up through a a saliva or a urine or a stool test. So when you have all the information together, and that's what your doctor will be able to kind of look at with you versus a service that only has one silo of information. Right. So when you started this, was there anything kind of out of range or, or something that you focused on from the beginning in your results before you even changed your diet? Or was everything kind of standard and normal? Well, no. So maybe I didn't go back to the earlier blood work and, and notice it too badly. But when I put it all and, and tried to like look at it side by side, I was like, Things like testosterone were way down, really low. Right. What kind of level were you, were you at? 400s. Right, right. So it's at the bottom of the normal reference range, right? Yeah, even lower. I mean, I, I probably had a test that even dropped below that. But it was um, it was considered way low. I think like some of the reference ranges I've seen, they want you over like 600. Just depends on what service you're using. I was noticing that my white blood cell count was consistently low really low. Like my doctor, <laughs> I had a, in my lab results, it showed the, the white blood cell count. And it usually like they, they bold something if it's like out of range, you know, to notify you be like, Hey, this is out of range. <laughs> it was like in red. And it said something like just to bring it to the doctor's attention. And he was like, okay, that's, I've never seen that before. And so that was something that we can talk further about. I had a very similar situation that came up. My white blood cells were basically depressed a little bit, but they weren't crazy out of range, um, acute, like they weren't acutely problematic. My experiences was that traditional doctors didn't know what to make of that. And it was basically like, well, your immune system isn't responding as well as it should for some reason, which isn't so defined. I don't think in traditional medicine, if it's just slightly out of range, I don't know how much you were if you were just under the reference range or something. It was no, it was, um, it was pretty low, like oh, okay. basically under two. Mm, yeah, that is pretty low. Yeah, yeah it's like it's pretty severe. The and then it's interesting because did you discover this stuff when you started testing or did you feel like? You said you were feeling exhausted, but it doesn't sound like you felt like you had, like, you know, you were sick or anything like that. Yeah, that's one of those things where I'm a person who was never sick. Don't miss, I don't miss work. I have to function at a certain level every day. Essentially, what I was doing was I was getting through life almost with like a parking brake on. That's what you actually look at the, the information and see how it can change over time. So a lot of it, you sort of uncover it. But yeah, you might feel great. Like I, I always thought I felt good until I was hitting this moments of just exhaustion just dealing with on a day-to-day level, I think otherwise, like emotionally and everything else, I felt fine. It was it was this exhaustion, which we can talk a bit later about um, things like addressing thyroid and adrenal problems, which can really tie into that. But just to get back to the story on the diet, so I did for 30 days and get my results and my total cholesterol went up about, I don't know, about 100 points. My HDL, which is good cholesterol, went up, which is it was actually like really high, which is great. And, and triglycerides stayed pretty good range. Um, so my, the doctor I was working with at the time, <laughs> I kind of looked at it. We did some other testing. And this doctor was actually someone who had some background working with people who are eating these types of diets and sort of paleo. But even there, he was like, well, you know, it's a bit out of range, but we'll do some additional testing. Um, and he looked, they wanted to look at to them, they thought the cause was purely that it was a fat malabsorption issue, meaning like you're eating all these saturated fats and your body needs to be able to process them and clear them out. If they just sort of stay in your body and float around, it'll elevate your LDL. Right. So what was funny about that is when I started the Bulletproof Diet, I started about, I've been following pretty much the Bulletproof Diet, like with some modifications here and there, but mostly that for about three years now. And I got exactly the same LDL number as you. Mine jumped to 232. And, and I went to see a traditional doctor to get my results in Bangkok. 
And he was like, you've got to stop eating fat, you know, saturated fat. And he was, um, that's the traditional line on it. So you had a doctor who understood a bit more about what those kind of levels can mean. But it actually did kind of freak me out a little bit, went up to 232. I don't know how, how you felt about it. I wasn't too worried because I, I was expecting that to happen. And then when we actually went in, like this doctor knew to do a, there's a more detailed LDL test. There's different types of LDL in your body. And, and they're like, based on, there's these larger particles which can kind of just float around your body. Well, they're not going to cause any issues. And the smaller LDL particles. So when you th- hear about people having, getting into heart issues and just chronic heart disease and all of that, it's because these little particles are getting wedged inside of your veins, essentially, your arteries. Uh, so when you look at the LDL particle size analysis, for me, it was completely the large fluffy ones. So it was actually not an issue. But the, when we looked at the white blood cell count, this doctor, he sent me to actually to a phlebotomist. It was a blood specialist, basically. And we did a whole bunch of other blood tests. And this was a renowned sort of uh, doctor. And he looked at my results and saw it was low. And he kind of started asking me questions about, have you been working around solvents and chemicals? Because part of like a low white blood cell count, it's not that your immune system isn't, isn't kicking up, it's that it's being suppressed. There could be something at play that's keeping your immune system from, from activating. So when you think about it, well, why was I never getting sick? Because being sick is an expression of your immune system kicking into action, right? Often. Right. Yeah. This is interesting. Yeah. I think this is something that a lot of people don't understand. So let's explain this a bit. Yeah. So you think of people, you know, like I know people who it's the winter time, so they're always sick. They've got a cold or the flu and I never get cold or the flu or anything. And I've always thought of it as being a sign of resilience. And, you know, I, I, but really what it was doing is my body just isn't mounting any response to anything. Yeah, so if your body's not fighting, you don't get any inflammation, you don't get all the symptoms because there's no war going on, basically, where there should be a war <laughs> war going on. You're trying to beat the thing down. As I went through exactly the same thing, and I haven't really been sick for a very long time also, but we're talking about it being a negative, which is most people think, wow, it's great that you never get sick. Do you get sick now? Have you started to get sick yet? Or No. <laughs> I no. mean... Me neither. Me neither. But I think it's a good thing. I think it has something to do with all the, all the stuff I'm doing to keep things at bay. Although, maybe we could talk about, I think you're taking Reishi. We could talk about that a little bit later. Uh, maybe you've noticed some of the stuff I did. But so anyway, so you went through this process and after the 30-day diet, LDL the only thing that changed or there's a whole bunch of other stuff as well? Well, definitely uh, there was a difference in testosterone level. It jumped up. There were other reference markers. I mean, things like you know, C-reactive protein, which is an indicator of uh, inflammation. I've always had it pretty low. That remained low. Uh, there wasn't anything else that was really too out of range other than the white blood cell count after that and the cholesterol numbers changing. And there's a number of ratios. Like I, I had done some research and found you can do things like HDL to, to total cholesterol ratio or triglycerides to HDL or HDL to LDL, and there, you'll get some ratio. And they've kind of figured out like certain ranges that if, you're, if, if each ratio is below a certain amount, like your risk for things like heart disease or other ways of being a predictor of those types of things can be diminished. So in those cases, I was like in the green, like everything was even. So even though my total cholesterol and LDL went up, my HDL had gone up so high and my triglycerides were low enough that the ratios were actually good ratios. Well, I think what you're illustrating is that when someone goes and gets a bunch of these labs or something, sometimes if we find something out of range, if it's an LDL or or triglycerides or something like that, that's kind of like the first step. Because after that, that's going to be like, okay, this is something to look into. And then you look into more detail of that. So there's different types of LDL, as you were explaining earlier, or there's ratios of triglycerides, which are more important. So often when we have something out of range, it's really kind of like a starting point versus a final point. Yeah. And, and then to follow up on that testing. So 
that doctor basically was saying that I had some fat malabsorption issues. So we, we did some follow-up tests, uh, some stool tests basically. And it did show that there basically was a fat malabsorption issue happening. And then we did some microbiology work on it as well, which kind of shows you your gut flora, um, your kind of like certain bacteria that could be good bacteria or bad bacteria in your gut. It showed that, for example, there's a, a good species of bacteria you often see in probiotics, uh, lactobacillus type of bacteria. I had like none, which basically allows for some other bad bacteria to, to maybe grow right, or, or thrive in, in your gut. So you have to then start going back through time. And I'm like, well, I had probably received antibiotics way back in the day. Maybe 10 years ago, I had been bitten by a tick. I was getting treated for, I didn't have chronic Lyme disease like symptoms, but I spotted the bite mark and I went to a doctor right away and we went through, a, basically gave me a, a bunch of antibiotics to, to treat it. But those are the types of things that can just like wipe out all your gut flora because antibiotic was just like, it, it gets rid of the good stuff and the bad stuff. Right, right. So you decided after this 30 day test to continue with the same diet, the bulletproof diet, right? Yeah, exactly. So I was like, okay, I, I like how I'm feeling. Even just in 30 days, let's keep doing it. Basically, you know, I think I'm almost a little over a year and a half, almost two years now since that first post when I was about to start it. So I've got a lot more history now. I've got a lot more gone down that rabbit hole of looking at different issues and seeing what's linked to what. Because what this started uncovering was we're looking at things like cholesterol and elevated cholesterol and other things that might show up in blood work. But really, there was a combination of things happening. And it wasn't diet related. The diet almost like uncovered it. The diet didn't cause it related to... Uh, some chronic infections that were lingering, as well as uh, some thyroid adrenal issues. So talking about things like energy and being exhausted and wasn't necessarily chronic fatigue, but you, there's tests that can show like your body's sort of response. And like I said, everything's connected to each other. So you kind of go down this, <laughs> this path where you start with the blood work on the macro level, and now you're working your way towards like, okay, if we can fix this one thing, that's going to help 10 things. Yeah. So I'm sure the people at home are like, well, wow, that sounds like a lot of different stuff and it's complicated. And how do you figure out that you have to look at all these things if you want to either resolve health symptoms or improve your performance? Just take a step back here. Since you went on this journey, so it's about one and a half years ago, maybe a bit more. How do you feel in comparison to when you started? Oh, I feel great. I used that analogy earlier. You always think you feel okay, or, or maybe you have moments, maybe you didn't feel great, but you still feel like generally like, oh, I'm, I'm okay. You know, I'm not getting sick and all of that. And as you remedy some of these issues, you realize that you kind of had that parking brake on. You're, you know, you're getting by and you're able to, if you were able to be um, achieving things at that level <laughs> with those conditions that once you take that parking brake off, you just feel even more amazing. Right. Yeah, I've got a very similar story to tell. It's like I didn't realize my full potential pretty much all my life because there were some lingering issues all the way through. And as you work through this stuff, you realize that your performance, your functionality, just your general well-being can be potentially at a much higher level than you've been used to. And you've kind of accepted this, this lower standard and you don't realize that you can really feel really great and really operate at a really high level if you get there. I feel uh, way, way better after I was talking to you just before about taking steps up fix one thing and it takes you a step up in terms of energy or whatever is kind of lacking for you and every time you fix one thing it takes you up that other step and slowly you get more and more out of life and, and out of performance and everything so in terms of the diet now you've been doing it one and a half years is so is that really worked for you has that changed other things like you're talking about testosterone has there been any benefits that you've noticed or that have been recorded and how often have you been tracking your progress with that 
Yeah. So we fast forward now, let's say a year and a half from when I started. Again, like we talked about the initial 30 days or so and seeing things like total cholesterol going up 100 points or so and LDL. Well, my last round, like after the year and a half, I did a, a round of follow-up work and my numbers actually went down to levels that were lower than before I even started the diet. Things like total cholesterol, um, LDL, and my HDL still was higher. And testosterone was almost double from before I started. Right. So this is all positive changes by the sounds of it. Positive. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and this was really due to introducing um, some program around thyroid and adrenal support because there are an underactive thyroid has been linked to elevated LDL. So it's almost like that's a shortcut <laughs> that I had to spend a year and a half trying to get to because we had to try out, you know, figure out a bunch of different things. And my doctor was basically like, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to support your thyroid while we deal with the, these chronic infections because it's just putting too much stress on your body. We need to support your adrenals and thyroid. And sure enough, those numbers went right up. Yeah. So we were talking about this just before the show. I poured in it is you found a doctor that could work with the things that you'd uncovered. You got these tests, which weren't kind of right. And you wanted to explore them and find how to fix them and work on them probably in, a, in quite a bit of detail. You sound like a guy who's really interested in performance and stuff and you're, you're trying to optimize and that isn't normally what doctors are, are there for. And so most of them would be like, well, we don't normally work. I don't normally work on this stuff. So how did you go about finding a doctor that was going to have the same mindset of you and was going to work with you on the way you wanted to with this? Yeah, it was a long process. When I first got into sort of the biohacking side of things and and looking at getting some of that tests and data. Um, I was working with a, my local a primary care physician, just as someone local, and could do some of the testing, but the person wasn't necessarily experienced in digging into those numbers. They just knew reference ranges. And then I moved on to another doctor through research. I was trying to find people with more of a functional medicine background. So I know you've done some interviews around functional medicine, but you know it's basically going from treating the symptoms to treating the causes and, or identifying the causes. So I found someone that was local, but we, and that's how I, when I first started um, doing some of this blood work and some of this testing, he was good at identifying certain things, but I think there was a point where that was it. It was like, couldn't really dig deeper. And then just through talking to other people I know and introductions, I came across another doctor who within like, a 15-minute phone call was like, okay, I've seen this 10 times before. We're going to do that. We're going to test for these things. I'm pretty sure that this is the issue at play. And sure enough, more just because that person had already was so used to seeing that. And what's great about even with a functional doctor is they don't have to be in your town. My doctor's in Austin and I'm in New York. So we set up Skype calls every month, can do a lot of this stuff virtually. We still see each other a couple times a year face-to-face. -face. We run into each other at, at a conference or something like that, but it's uh, it's been great. Yeah. I'm the same. I work with several doctors on different issues based on their expertise. So it's kind of bringing the point that you just referred to is when they actually they get something and they're like, oh, that looks like something I've seen before. If you have an initial discussion with a doctor and they can get that feeling for it, that, that's really good. The other thing I look for is someone who's got this investigative mindset, because if you've got some just small issues and you're not sure what they are and there's, there's no kind of clear answer or you're trying to improve your performance or energy levels and you're not sure what is there. If there's not a straight answer, you need someone who's going to try and sift through the data, have a bit of an investigative approach to it. So, and maybe even like go and check out some research or something. So, you know, I've got a bunch of friends who've come across problems in their lives and they've eventually found some, a doctor who's got a bit more of a detective investigative mindset and will go and do homework and look around and look at different tests until they find an answer, which isn't necessarily everyone's mindset when they're looking at this. I don't know if you've come across that kind of mindset before with someone you've worked with? From the standpoint of having different experience with different tests? 
Oh yeah, just having like a, I don't know what the answer is right now, but let's investigate and just keep working on it until we find some kind of answer. Because I think the reality is the world of biology is really complex. A lot of the terms we brought out today and a lot of the things you've been talking about, it can be really, really complex to uncover little things that are holding you back in different ways. Um, so it's a bit like a maze and a puzzle. Sometimes you got to, you got to solve. So if you just look at the straight test sometime, you're not going to get any clear answer. We were talking earlier about stool tests and I've probably done about uh, nearly 10 stool tests right now. And sometimes different answers come out. And so sometimes you need someone to look through and dig through the data and keep going for a while rather than relying on something they've seen before. But whereas you brought up the example where if you find someone who's had direct experience with your specific problem, I find this kind of specialized approach. If you look at the business world of consulting, for instance, they have specialized consultants versus general consultants. And the general consultants are problem solvers. They kind of go in there and they investigate and they're like the detectives, whereas the specialized guys really know their stuff really well. So I kind of see the world of doctors a bit similar. You can find like the general guy who's going to investigate. He's maybe a functional medicine doctor and he's just going to keep investigating and looking at stuff and he's going to figure it out by problem solving. Whereas the guy will really be specialized in one area, really know it really well. And he's seen like 500 uh, different patients or perhaps they're athletes like trying to achieve the same goal and helping them with that. Yeah, where I see a lot of this, everything with quantified self going ultimately is this concept of a quantified team. You'll have your doctor and your doctor can look at data and give you some information. You'll have someone who can analyze data. So like, you know, we we're talking earlier, like we're not all data scientists. We can collect this information, have it, but to do correlations and really in-depth analysis, um, most of us don't run it. You know, we don't know where to start with that, but having almost like a coach or an interpreter of that information can kind of sit between you with your doctor or if you're an athlete or something, you can, you know, then articulate that and get with other, you know, coaches, et cetera. And I do see this idea of a, of almost like a team where instead of just being you and your doctor, you're going to have a group of people that all, they work together to be that sort of team. But I think they each bring a different skill set to the table. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. I hadn't heard that before, but that really is a great way to put it for. And it'd be interesting how that takes place. I guess I kind of already have like some kind of team like going, I don't know about you, but it's, I hadn't thought about it like that, but I guess that's the way it's, it's just evolving naturally. Okay. It sounds like you were just frustrated that you weren't solving things and you kept on kind of looking and meeting people and it was more like networking that you managed to meet someone that was relevant to you. Yeah. And in my case, it was for me, it was even just looking at all the tests and all that. My interest is also that I actually have a personal, really strong personal interest in understanding how human physiology works and all of that. So I'm sitting there reading books, consuming information. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor, but I like to be able to understand. So if someone even shows me the lab test, I'm, I, you know, the doctor is going to explain things to me, but I want to understand it at a deeper level. And that's just my curious nature. I think a lot of folks probably don't want to dig that deep, but that's just an interest of mine. <laughs> right. I'm the same way. For me, I kind of see it as my responsibility. And depending on what you want to get out of your body and your life, I see it as a really good investment of time. The more you understand your biology, when I think back to like four years, five years ago, and I was already working on fitness stuff like you and optimizing it with numbers and stuff. But now I have so much control over my body, just all sorts of functions that I didn't realize that you could control. I thought they were just kind of like things that happen, right? We're talking about energy dips. I have my own adrenal fatigue documented that I'm, I'm working with. But when you learn a few tricks and, and things, even if you do have adrenal fatigue and you're working on recovering from that, you can actually avoid those periods of exhaustion, which I guess some of your exhaustion you talked about before was either thyroid or adrenal related to. Yes, you were talking about a certain test you take. It's like a saliva test that over the course of 24 hours, you basically can plot a curve to show your uh, cortisol and, D and um, DHA response. Yeah. Yeah. So I had a similar situation where it was showing my cortisol levels actually were pretty close to what the reference should have been, like it mapped pretty closely. 
but they like but when you look at the ratio of cortisol to DHA, it was like completely out of whack, which is like signs and uh, rings an alarm saying, okay, there's something going on with adrenals here and supporting it. Yeah, I found that a really valuable test. And I kind of feel like everyone should do it, especially driven entrepreneurs, business, anyone who's just working too hard, basically, too many hours a week or too stressed. And I think that's pretty much everyone these days. It seems like everyone, everyone's kind of stressed. I talk to, they don't sleep enough and, and they work too hard. And they and often like they're working out at weekends or in the evenings as well or in the mornings if they can fit it in. So when you think about all of that, like, I think a lot of people could maybe check that test out and they might find that there's something they can do there to improve their energy levels and so on. Yeah. And, and with regards, you know, to the, the diet, I was also incorporating uh, intermittent fasting, essentially consuming all of my meals in a, a six hour window each day. So just out of interest, we've talked a little bit about intermittent fasting with uh, Jimmy Moore a little bit uh, when we were talking about ketosis. But which hours of the day do you choose to eat at and why? My window for intermittent fasting is probably, I'd say, between one and seven or noon and six. It depends. You try to time it so that you start right after your workout. But the way I was doing it was I, you sort of cheat because in the morning, if you do this sort of like special coffee that I'm sure you've talked about before, butter and MCT oil, well, because you're getting fats in your body, you're getting the calories, but you're still in ketosis. But with regards to intermittent fasting, if you have adrenal thyroid issues, you should not be doing. That's pretty much the one thing I've had to, I only cut it down to a day where it was like on a weekend or a day I wasn't working out because it's, it is stressful on the body. And for me, it was like, why add the stress that you don't need right now to fix the other issues? Right. I think that's an important thing because internet fasting has become a bit of a trend. It seems very much in fashion these days, but there's some people it's not right for, or at least not right to be doing every day. Like uh, you could do it from time to time, but doing too much of it, like you said, depending on where you're at, can be a bit problematic as can like, you know, the type of training you did. So I was just wondering, how often do you get your blood labs done now? I guess you, you started to do it more routinely when you started uh, the diet and everything. But how often do you do them and which markers are you keeping an eye on primarily? Yeah, so I would say in terms of ongoing um, testing, I would say every three months. If I'm addressing something more short term, I can go test that maybe on a monthly basis. But I would say three months is my good window because I'm usually, if I'm addressing something, that's enough time to get an update and see where my markers are at. In terms of what I'm checking, so those can range from basic panels where you're doing, we talked about cholesterol markers, glucose, nutrients like calcium, magnesium, vitamin D, all the sort of those micronutrients, then getting into things like white blood cells, C-reactive protein. That, and that's more of like a traditional panel. When I've had to dig deeper I would do these additional tests. One's called like an MDL test where they can track, that's more checking for um, chronic infections and stuff, but it's all done through blood work. So you can dig a little deeper. The main issue is these tests cost money. <laughs> you either need a, a good insurance plan or you have some way to, to get those costs down. So, so is that what you recommend? Like for you, a three months is about right cost benefit for those set of labs? Yeah. Yeah. And I think you could basically, there were these at-home services that we were trying to launch where you can draw it every day if you want. And you maybe, there is a case where you were trying to do a before and after of something, but to go to a lab and do a full panel for the average person, I think even six months is fine. But if you're trying to dealing with any issues or you need an update, I think for me, it, it's at least it's been three months is a pretty good window there. But, and also some of the testing, so like Wellness FX or Inside Tracker, they have certain panels that they can, even like the most expensive panel or the highest end one they have is there's a limit to what they can provide. And so what I found through my doctor was by him ordering some of the tests, we can do much more comprehensive panels. Right, right. 
have you been using Inside Tracker for those basic blood markers most of the time, or what have you been doing for the routine tests you do? Yeah, so the routines um, had been on and off with Inside Tracker. I don't know if you've talked about the weird laws that exist in this country about all these testing services. Um, the weird laws that exist everywhere, man. <laughs> it's yeah. like, it's, so, it's so, like everywhere. So, for example, like with Inside Tracker, I was using that for the basic panels, and when I needed to do some additional things, so they would send me to a, a LabCorp facility, which is like a big chain of laboratories. You go there and they can do it all. In New York State, they can't do it. So there's rules about what they can and can't do. I couldn't just go there and set up the appointment. My doctor, however, could just arrange, you know, he could just say, go to this lab and he could actually negotiate lower prices for certain things than insurance. You know, so you might see like your bill would be like this blood work costs $2,500, but you know, you're going to pay $100 or something out of pocket, assuming you hit your <laughs> insurance uh, thresholds. But so, yeah, my point is, so it's just tough because I love the convenience of those types of services. It's just that I happen to live in a state where it's really difficult. Right. So New York is a bit more, as far as I know, I think there's another one other state. New York is, I know, always comes up as a specific state where you're not, this self-testing is more complicated. There's also a bunch of other services you can use, like direct labs and other self-service uh, websites, basically, you can hit up and you can order tests. In fact, I find most tests these days I can order. But as you say, sometimes it's worth either you're working with a functional doctor or someone from your kind of team, and he'll be ordering them for you. And I, there is a cost benefit to that often, I think, versus ordering them directly. And of course, um, he's going to be checking them and looking at them. And he's got his experience looking at tons and tons of tests of these types. And he's also got probably... Uh, a mountain of data in all of the tests he's stacked up over time, which I find this kind of thing is really valuable, as we've talked about before. But it is changing. Um, and that's one of the things we're going to look at in this podcast is like things do change over time and all these new services start coming out more and more. So in terms of intermittent fasting, that's something you, you kind of cut down to fit with your personal situation, where it kind of comes back to this N equals one experiment thing, where it's really a personal thing and what suits you. And how did you know to change that? Was it because one of your tests or is it as a feeling and then you looked at it? No, and in that case, actually, intermittent fasting worked great for me in terms of body composition and just, you know, I was able to confine my meals into that window and still get, you know, everything I need to eat. It was more just after talking with my doctor we said, you know, hey, let's do everything we can to support your thyroid adrenals. So let's take all as much stress as we can take off your body. Let's take that off. And so one of the we decided to like just cut back the intermittent fasting just to uh, just for the sake of like, let's just remove a potential stressor. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like a great idea. So that's kind of some of the stuff I, I do as well. Try to reduce all stress. So that's intermittent fasting. One of the um, other interesting things you've played about was blood glucose. Yeah, I was one of the early 23andMe customers. So I know like now if you sign up for them to get your genetic testing done, they don't give you access to these uh, research and tests that can say like you're more likely to develop this condition or this, have this response to this medication. So I, just to be clear on that, because I bought in the early days like you, so I still have the health interface. I think the difference is is just the interface they present to you. They don't present the information summarized about your health. Is that correct? Well, I thought they ran into some FDA issues where they can only show people their like ancestry information now. Right, right. So, I think it's in terms of display, but you can still download your whole... Oh, yeah. You can download your raw data, but it's, there's no interpretation of it. So that's right. Basically, we see a health panel because we got in early and they'd already shown it to us. So they're still allowed to show it to us. Or I guess they promised us. So they made some deal with the FDA that they're allowed to keep showing us it. Yeah. But they're not changing it. It's just like what we saw from the start. And then and you guys, if you do download the data, then you can run it through some open source tools, but they're not 
as nice and summarized, you have to do a lot more work with those if you want to kind of get to some of your health issues. Yeah, I've used Promethease is one. Right. And, uh, right. and Genetic Genie. Yeah, Genetic Genie is a bit more simple, actually. But Prometheus is quite, it's a lot of detail and a lot of work to get through. Did you find it the same? Yeah, I, I thought the Genetic Genie was interesting, though, because it got more into um, methylation analysis, which was for me was kind of an interesting you know, set of data that I wasn't getting from anywhere else. Right, right. But you can get that in Prometheus. I mean, you get everything basically from Prometheus because it's a big open source thing. The Genetic Genie guys are focused on a few different issues like uh, detox and methylation. So they're looking at specific panels. And there's another website Ben Lynch mentioned, which looks at specific panels like that. So anyway, there are ways where you can use this data from 23andMe and you can get different sets of health issues looked at by going to different sites, basically, and, and putting your data in there. So the data is still there if you want it. It just takes a bit more work than it used to. So in terms of the blood glucose, you found an issue that you wanted to look at? Okay, so going back to the blood glucose. So in my 23andMe data uh, showed I had an elevated risk for type 2 diabetes. It was about 10% higher probability, meaning like the average person has, I think, a 26%. So it's already a pretty high percentage likelihood. And I think mine was 36. And I know it had, um, I had a few members in the family, like uncles and grandparents that had developed it over the years. So... I was just got interested in looking at my glucose response and, and I had it or anything or it was even close. It was more like, let me understand it. I want to understand the effects on glucose, what affects me. I'm going to take whatever proactive steps I can to just, I don't want to develop it at any point in my life. And so really this experiment just started as, let me just understand my blood sugar. And I went and bought a uh, $12 blood glucose meter, ordered it off of Amazon and you get the test strips and you prick your finger every morning. And it's a little meter that just says, here's your uh, blood sugar level. So I would do a fasting, what's called a fasting glucose measurement. And that's uh, basically, you know, I think you have eight hours of fasting before it. So every morning, like first thing, as soon as I'd wake up, I would just take a reading. And I started establishing a baseline just to understand just getting some basic levels. I was reading up about different supplements and, and things people have been taking to better regulate glucose and both stabilizing it so you have less swing of, of fasting glucose, but also overall just bringing it down. Because my fasting glucose was around 85 milligrams per deciliter, which is it's considered okay. But when you, you see these organizations like Life Extension Foundation, they actually want people down in like closer to like 75, 78. Wow. Jimmy Moore, when he was on, he was saying that his is, is pretty low, so like 80, um, and that's where he keeps it. So when I looked at your data, what I found was interesting, because that's the blood test you got initially, right? You had your 80, 85, was it, to start off with? And then when you started tracking it, what did you see? Because I was really surprised. I didn't know that it worked like this when I saw your numbers. Yeah. So I did a, about a 30 day baseline and some days I'd wake up and it could be 80 or so. And then there's other days where I'd wake up and it could be like 105. It's a, a bit of a swing. Do you think that's accuracy of the device or did you look into it? And it, because I didn't expect big swings like that, because when I've had my test done in the past, which is just the three month routine like you, I will have 85 and then maybe there was sometimes it was 95 and I'd be like, oh, I don't like that. Right. I don't like the fact that it's up there. But it seems from your data that it's actually swinging up and down kind of every day. Is that normal or is that was that the device or is that just kind of how we are generally? Well, I think in terms of the device, I, I did a bunch of research and listen, none of these are going to be super completely accurate. I think the one I chose um, was probably within 5% accuracy, especially because when you think about it, who are the people that are using these devices? They're people who have diabetes typically. So their glucose is so high that whether it shows them that they're at 160 milligrams per deciliter or 150, they're still too high. So the lower ranges like we're talking about, you know, 5% is still okay, but some of these meters are like, can be 10% or more. And, and to your point, yeah, I think there's, 
if you're not controlling it consistently each day in terms of I take it at almost the same time every morning, I'm taking the sample from the same location, I'm not squeezing the, my finger too hard because if you squeeze the blood out of a, a little prick you give your finger, um, that can affect it. But what I did find, so I took a baseline and then I started supplementing. I'd come across this supplement called oxaloacetate. And it's all natural. It's like a derivative of, it's part of the Krebs cycle and, and which is like a whole cycle of conversion going into vitamin C and it's found in a lot of plants. So they've concentrated into like a, it's like a pill form. And so you take one every morning. I took one every morning and over the course of the next 30 days, I kept doing those fasting glucose readings and I actually saw, wow, it, it actually reduced that swing that we were just talking about, condensed and the overall trend went down. So it actually stabilized and lowered, which is really cool. So what do you find is cool? Because I guess we we got to take a little bit step back. We talked a little about blood regulation with uh, a Jimmy Moore, but what we, what kind of benefits were you looking for from this yourself? Is it because of your genetic profile or you were basically managing your risk as you saw it? Is that what you feel the benefit is for you? Well, I think long term, it's part of like a longevity right um, strategy. I I, I just want to make sure that I could say very easily like today my glucose was already in what's considered a good range, but it wasn't optimal. And I was trying to understand not just how could I bring it down into an optimal range, but also what factors, what things affected it. Because once you've collected all this data, you can then look at other aspects of your life and go, what affects these values? So for example, plotting your values on a chart over time is one thing. But if I average out like, what does Monday look like versus Friday? There's a difference. Monday's the beginning of the work week, more stressful. Friday's the end of the week. Saturday is the weekend. So there's like a natural, like for me, I could see it just very visually there are these trends. I also noticed that if I exercise, like I play a lot of soccer and if I have a soccer match, I usually play in the evenings. The next day, no matter what, even if I went out with the team and had drinks or did whatever, my value the next day like goes way lower. And I only uncovered that by taking other data from other areas of my life or looking at my calendar and going, huh, that's pretty interesting. Would you say you've got this detective mindset? I mean, how did you go about that? Was it you were like, oh, wondering about what was affecting, looking for ideas? Yeah, you start thinking about, because you have the data, now you've got this repository of these values, and now you're trying to figure out ways to correlate it with other areas of your life. So for example, I was looking at exercise, I decided to look at my calendar, and I superimposed uh, dates that I had to travel, like cross country, like fly. And guess what? <laughs> During those windows of time, I was taking measurements throughout the entire process. Um, it definitely spiked. So travel for me was a, it's a stressful, it took a, it actually took a few days to get back to those pre-existing baselines. Wow. Wow. That, Cause that's a big deal. And travel is something we say is stressful, but we don't, it's not often we hear like some data on it. Uh, this proves that travel stress for you, but that sounds like a pretty clear case for you. So N equals one experiment. You can probably say that you're going to be stressed next time and you can kind of prepare for it. Yeah. And then with the experiment, I then stopped taking that supplement, for example, and just kept taking markers for another 30 days. And I tried to replicate it. And when I replicated it, the beauty of these N equals one experiments are you often fail. Maybe you set out to prove a theory and you fail, but you learn something different. So it's not a failure per se. I, so I redid it uh, and it didn't work. And what I realized was it was a combination of things. It was, a win- it was last winter. <laughs> we had gotten a bunch of snow in New York. So our soccer season had basically gotten canceled because you, we play outdoors all year round and the field's covered in ice and snow. So like, there were like no games. So that exercise I was getting, I wasn't getting. Also, I had changed my commute like from going into an office and having to walk there to the in New York. So you walk to the subway, walk to the office, to working from home for a period of time. So I actually then looked at my data from just my step data. Not that I ever really bothered tracking steps from the or looking at my step data for like a, a health related thing reason. But I did notice that my overall trend of it, so my activity was actually decreasing. So 
you know, what does that say? Well, the low hanging sort of takeaway there is if I exercise, my glucose will go down. That's which is probably like a no duh kind of thing. But for me, it just shows like the direct benefit short term and a long term trend. Yeah. I guess you're just making me think of something. We've kind of touched on this before in podcasts, but when you're showing that direct benefit, it makes it clearer for you and it makes you more motivated to act upon it, right? Now you feel like you've got this extra additional motivation. Like, tell me if this isn't you. It's just me like projecting. But I feel when I understand something a lot clearer, when I've seen the data, then it's a lot easier for me to keep up that habit because I I understand it to a a clearer point of view. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think Part of the folks like us who are doing a lot of this are, I guess, we're like these A-type personalities and we're trying to not only understand all this, but we want to reduce this to the most simple terms like what's the quick, what's the one thing I can do to get to the same result? It's not about creating more headaches in your life. You're trying to optimize your, (laughs) you're trying to like gain more time in your life, not take up more trying to do all this tracking. Right, exactly. Because I'm sure this sounds like a lot. Actually, let's talk about it probably sounds like a lot of work. Do you feel like it's a lot of work? Could you talk a little bit about like how much time it takes to get the labs or or track things or analyze it? Yeah, I would say what takes the most time is probably the analysis, just sitting down with data. Because like you said, you have to have this sort of detective mindset oftentimes because you have information until it makes itself clear to you in some way or you want to test out a a theory. Because most of the things I've done are almost in retrospect where I had collected information already, and then I'm trying to figure something out versus I'm constructing an experiment, and these are the variables, and let's see how it, I'm pretty bad at that. I'm almost like better at the reverse, like here's the result, let's figure out what created that result and go backwards. But from a time perspective, I think even collecting information, going for a lab test, I mean, getting your blood drawn takes a few minutes. It's not, it's not like that big of a deal. Most of my data, like I'll wear a device on my wrist that's collecting a lot of you know passive biometric information all day. I think the goal is to not create a lot of, you know, burdensome things on yourself. Certain experiments, you might only need it to run it. Like, I know a lot of people track, like, all the meals they eat. Like, they'll use, like, MyFitnessPal or something. They want to log all the meals and track their calories. And and I'll do that every once in a while for, like, a few days just as a gut check. I'm not going to do it every day. It just takes too much time. It's, like, too – for me, it's just, like, a headache. I consistently, so I'm not too worried about, you know, but once I do a gut check, a sanity check, I know it's okay. But I think that's the problem. I think a lot of people feel like this becomes such, so burdensome and takes up so much time. And I think you have to pick your battles. It's like there's certain things that you want to do every day. And if it takes you a minute to do it, that's great. Other things are being done passively. So you're collecting that data and just a matter of finding the time to sit down and analyze it. Yeah, yeah. There's very few things um, I do. I saw you noted on your blog, I think you're interested in meditation, right? And um, you were looking at doing some stuff. I don't know if you've done any yet. I've been using Calm for a few months now. Um, I I mean, I got it in on September or something. And so I try and do that every day. And over time, being able to improve my scores with this EEG device, basically a consumer EEG device. And it's got a little app which shows you when you're in one state versus another. And I found it useful because I want to meditate anyway. And But I going back to what you were saying, I want to make sure I'm spending my time productively. And for me, the extra effort of tracking it has a huge impact in terms of improving my meditation Because meditation is different for different people. But for me, I've been experimenting with binaural beats, which I think you mentioned too, the Holosync one. And I found that's working for me. But I like to know stuff is working for me before I commit to it. And I put that extra energy in it. it. So I did a few experiments and it seems to be working for me. So I'm sticking with it. Um, But I'm just trying to give people a mindset in terms of time, like you were saying, that if something doesn't seem to be working, you just kind of drop it. And then the stuff that does work, you'll keep it because it's beneficial. So some of this just kind of works out itself. 
you'll keep the stuff that is beneficial so it's worth the time like I take my HRV readings every morning because when I see a dip I know there's some kind of problem coming or I should chill out for a day or you know if I don't want to get really tired or something the things that are beneficial I think you find that they kind of stick and you keep you make the time for them kind of automatically and the things that aren't you kind of just work them out of your routine is that similar to the way you found it or have you gone about it? Yeah, no, exactly the same. I think there are certain tasks you can do that take up very little time. Like I'll have a little routine in the morning of when I wake up, I'll, I'll do a handful of things or, or before I go to sleep. But then there's other things I've done where whether it's a piece of technology or I was trying to understand myself better. But once I did the analysis or once I gathered data, I was like, I have a box full of devices that it's kind of like, right. kind of like <laughs> yeah, you throw it out. You're like, great, that was useful. Okay, well, I don't need. And I think people get hung up on the gear a lot of times. And I think often you can figure out solutions that don't require the technology per se. You can take a spreadsheet and something like a little body fat calipers can give you body fat measuring. You don't need a $200 scale to, to do that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's all this excitement around the devices and everything at the moment. You know, all the companies are investing in it, of course, because that's what the market is. But so far, there isn't crazy awesome devices yet. There's a few interesting ones here and there. And it, it's a thing in progress. And I've done some of the similar ones to you at the basis watch and I worked for you it broke and then I didn't buy a new one because honestly I didn't do that much with the data. It'd be kind of nice to know my activity levels just to check that I'm keeping up and it's a nice convenient way just to know that. Do you still use your basis watch? Yeah. Yeah. I have it on right now. And for me, it was uh, looking for just something that gathered the metrics that I felt it had the most robust set of data, even though they didn't give you the data, but I figured out, but we can talk a bit about like, I actually, I figured out a way to get to the data. I wrote a script and giving my technology background, I was able to write some code. I put it up on open source kind of like a website that um, people can use to download their basis data. Right. Yeah. Thank you for that. I think that's how I first found you actually, because I was looking, I was looking, trying to get my yeah. data and I found yeah. your website. I was like, oh, thank God someone solved this. And so for something like that, that's just passively collecting. So I might not look at that data for you know some of those numbers for a few months. Like right now, I'm actually about to go over all of my sleep data from 2014. And I'm going to do, do an analysis on looking at trends. How is my sleep by day of week or different sleep stages or what factored in or look at my things that happened in my life and did it affect you know my sleep? I, I don't know what the answers are going to be. I'm not going into it with any preconceptions. So that's almost for me, it's going to be more of like a developing more self-awareness and seeing you know, like I might be like, well, look, at, you know, I have this many sleep cycles, but I don't remember my dreams. So what's going on there? Why am I not remembering dreams? Is that been happening to you lately? Because I've had that for a year and I've only just recently come across information that's been helping me to figure it out. Yeah, it's it's something that because I, I have no problem sleeping. I'm actually like a solid sleeper. I get eight hours a night. I actually like friends are jealous of me. But then I does it mean like my quality of sleep? I think it's good. But but for me with dreaming, it could just be for me as simple as, you know, I started creep, keeping like a notebook next to the bed. So as soon as I wake up in the morning, I have to try to think. And it, it was really hard for like the first week. And then maybe like after a week in the morning, I'll remember one, like some minor detail of one dream. But then in the afternoon, other things will start coming back to me. So you have to almost like train yourself. Oh, okay. So in, in your case, you, it was trainable. You could basically get your dreams back and it was kind of like a focus on dreams. I almost think it has a little bit of intent when you go to sleep of thinking, make, you know, putting yourself in that mindset of like you want a dream and then, and then waking up, just being able to recall that information. It's, you know, it's almost like, an, like you said, it's an attention thing. It's, it's no different than, you know, you're, you're talking and I'm not really, I'm tuning you out. Yeah, that's interesting. So the information I came across was a little bit different. It was through Tess, actually. It was, uh, so we had this guy called William J. Walsh. Uh, I don't know if you came across him before on the podcast in episode two, and he does these lab, set labs, um, which help you to assess basically micronutrient deficiencies or differences that are out of his functional ranges. And mine came out 
back out of range. And one of the things is that it shows uh, an imbalance of B6. And, and when you have an imbalance of B6, then you tend to stop dreaming. So I'm thinking, and that's probably once I've rectified mine, it might just kind of fix itself. But it's interesting. I might try the uh, experiment myself with the intent thing to see if that helps as well. Yeah, let me know how it works. Again, it's something that I've started probably since the beginning of this year. This being more aware of trying to like develop. <laughs> I think there will be value in it though, regardless. And, it, and it's not something that really takes any money or time. You just need an independent notebook. Yeah, I've always loved that idea of trying to think of a problem you need to solve before going to sleep. I think Ray Kurzweil does this and he's one of the guys who's said he always does that. And just solving stuff in your dreams is a great way to <laughs> be do efficiently stuff, do stuff you wanted to do. Just coming back kind of down to the practicalities of like, you've been doing this for quite a while now. What are the biggest time wasters you've found in the experimentation process about learning about stuff that works for you and what doesn't basically and collecting data? Have you found that there's things that you were doing that were time wasters and you decide not to do them anymore? Or what have you learned about N equals one experiments? So what do you do today that might be different to when you started out? Well, obviously on the uh, testing side of things, I wish someone had said to me, you know, give me the shortcuts and said, do this, this, and this. I mean, I have a lot of people come to me asking like, just give me a list of five things I need to do. It's often not that easy because we are all different. So you can't, it's not like it's a clear linear path. It's very branched. And I think for me, it would have been like if someone early on could have made some, identified some of the issues, it would have saved me a lot of like trial and error, just trying to uncover it. And, and that was probably why I started doing a lot of it myself in terms of trying to understand it better. Time wasters, this is more just from the standpoint of uh, looking at your data. Um, everybody wants to be this hub that own, that you upload all your data and, and will be the place for you to access all your information. The problem is, for most people, like we said earlier, we're not data scientists. We don't know how to run correlations. We don't understand all of that. And so you're uploading your data to these places, but then what? You're just like, it's just there. Or I look at it from the standpoint of if it can't collect all of my data, it's useless to me. So like I might have, um, like take like a wellness effects. You know, they might be like, okay, you can manually input all of your blood lab tests in here, right? But maybe I've got some additional fields or something in it that doesn't support. Well, now it doesn't have a, it's not my complete record. So now I'm like, well, this isn't really valid for me. So I feel like I've, I've wasted some time, like going through the process of getting data and massaging it and uploading it to certain places to try to have this like hub. So I've had to like do a lot on my own, just like make my own little ways of, of gathering it. Right. So do you use Excel? Excel. I mean, yeah. And I've got things imported into databases so I can run queries right. against it. But I guess for the people at home, they should stick with uh, even a Google Docs, a Google Docs spreadsheet. Anyone can use that. It's very similar to Excel. So I have a huge monstrous Excel, which is scary. I haven't found database would probably be a better way to do it if I could get my hand around, head around that. Yeah. A spreadsheet's a perfect way to get certain data. Pretty much anything you collect, you can import into an Excel doc or a Google doc and then chart it and do whatever you need to do with it. But in terms of like time wasters, I, well, it's not so much time, but it, it's almost like a money waster, I'd call it. There's a couple of things, right? There's the shelf life of a lot of this technology and tools, right? You buy this new cool gadget or whatever, and you either buy it, it's like planned obsolescence. Either you know in a year it's going to be outdated or someone's going to come out with something new, or you just want to be the first one to have this shiny object and play around <laughs> with it. You know, I got a device that analyzes your posture throughout the day, and it was fun. I did it. It kind of showed me some insight on understanding that better. But at some point, I'm like, I'm done. You know, I've used it. I'm done with it. I don't, I'm not going to wear this every day. It happened to kind of a ZO with the sleep tracking. They were you know, an EEG-based um, sleep monitor. And the problem with their business was more like from a consumer issue where people were buying the product because they had sleep problems. And the device said, yep, you have a sleep problem. 
it didn't really give them a solution. So people are like, well, you know, thanks. <laughs> so there's that level of things. And then I've also been burned a number of times on, you know, these crowdfunding campaigns. Oh, these companies. Right. And, and and it's not so much that it's their fault or they were doing anything shady. These are companies that it's the nature of it. It's like a pre-startup kind of situation. Yeah. And so my policy now is literally I'll I'll just wait for the thing to come out because you know what? Still gonna get it pretty much whenever, you know, if it's out. And, and right. So just to outline what you're talking about. That there are, what's the issues that come up with those when you're buying those things? Well, I think there's a number of issues. So like you said, they're startups typically. So if they're developing a product, they probably have no experience building like a piece of hardware. So they don't realize all the issues that can go, <laughs> that can happen along that process from manufacturing to distribution. So when they say, you know, we're going to ship in March and it's January, it, they probably mean March the following year. Like everything, nothing ships on time. I've also had issues where there was a blood testing service that was coming out that was doing like blood spot tests. So like you have these little index cards and you can just put a drop of blood on it and you can send them in anytime you want. I bought the top of the line pack because it gave me like three years of blood tests and they started letting us send in our, our samples and they were collecting them. So I wasn't doing other blood work because I was sending them like monthly samples. And then they got into trouble with like the FDA who basically were like, you cannot operate. And so the company was, has just been in limbo. There was another company that was, um, do you ever talk about telomeres or telomeres? Oh, wow. Actually, I did want to talk to you about that. We touched on it with, do you know, Aubrey de Grey? We talked about it a little bit. It hasn't been published on the podcast, but by the time this comes out, it will have been. Um, so it's kind of time traveling here. But um, yeah, he's been on and we talked about that. Um, and he was pretty pessimistic about um, the use of this. But I'd love to hear your experience with the practical experience of that, because I was wanting to get mine tested. And I think I still will just to kind of see where they're at compared to the normal. Yeah, so, so a telomere is basically, if you look at your DNA strands, just to give an analogy, it's the one that I've always been given. If you think of like a, a pair of shoelaces, and you know, at the end of your shoelace is a little plastic tip. So think of your DNA strands as having those little plastic tips, but as you get older, those they'll fray and eventually fall apart and then your strands will shorten. And so it's kind of like a, a sign of a marker of aging because at some point your cells can only divide they can only divide so many times and then they just die. So it's the idea of this countdown. You have this little countdown time where it starts at 100 or something and then it chips away one each time and when it gets to a certain level you don't have any life. It's kind of like like losing lives in a game <laughs> on a video game. Exactly. You see the health wearing down. But in this case um, this company was providing a service where you basically spit into a tube, you mail it in and they analyze through your saliva they do a, a telomere analysis. Right. Which which company was that? They were called Tello me. You say tello me, is that they're not here anymore? <laughs> uh, or are they still here? Well, they're here. I'll, I'll get to that part. But um, okay. basically, they're owned by a, there was a parent company that was more clinical, like um, they would do sort of testing more for through labs and all that. And they, this was a consumer initiative they were doing. And so the idea would, you, know, you spit in this, in this test tube, you mail it in, and then you get a report. And it shows you the analysis of certain telomeres that they've identified. And it says, where do you sit in a reference range? So I got my results. The problem is they can only compare me to other people who have used their service. And who's, and who's yeah, used the well, service? That's the thing. So when I, <laughs> I wrote them back, they sent me my results and I was like, oh, these don't look too good. And I was like, so, okay, you've got me compared to my age range. I go, well, how many people have you had so far that are in my age range? And they were like, I think five or six. So I'm like, great. Oh so God, so you're right. giving me results on this small sample size of, I don't even know who, you know. So are the markers they're using, uh, this is something I'm always interested in. Are they using markers which have a lot of research behind them? So that you can at least go and look at the studies or they should be giving you the information of those studies. In, in the studies, this is shown to be good in like healthy populations and bad in people who have cancer or whatever. Some kind of data on it. Yeah. Well, again, this was a case where 
I crowdfunded this initiative, which got me like a three test pack. The idea was I was going to do an experiment. I was going to be able to send in my sample, do some things, wait a few months, send in another sample to see if I was able to change the expression, whatever, the, the markers of, of aging. And um, when I went back to, to do it, I found out that the company no longer existed. The, well, the parent company still exists. They can't operate in the U.S., though. They got shut down by the FDA. So they're another one where, and I was like, well, give me my money back. And they don't respond to you. <laughs> so they're in Europe doing their thing, but they won't acknowledge or talk about, they won't give you any information about the testing service. Right. I guess it's not even the cutting edge. It's a bit of the bleeding edge of all of these, the labs. And because the FDA is still figuring out what it's going to do with stuff and what it's going to allow. And as, as you've pointed out, like already free companies have been told they're not allowed to do stuff for at least for the moment until they figure more things out. And there's a lot of that going on. And so I find sometimes a test will be available and it's not available, then it's available again. That's happened to me several occasions. The place I've got a test initially isn't available there anymore and I have to go somewhere else to get it. So it's kind of like the bleeding edge right now. And if you're going to get into the more specialized stuff, like telomeres or, or stuff like that, it's going to take some navigation, I guess, and expect some of these problems. Yeah. And I, like I said, I don't necessarily fault the companies all the time um, because they run in some regulation, things like that. But I guess from my standpoint, it's it's like you are gambling. <laughs> Funding these initiatives, they may come out someday, but it's often not going to be what they were positioning themselves as because, you know, they had to like re whether they pivoted or, or did something different. Yeah. We should look at crowdfunding as a bit of a gamble because it's it's a pre-startup. They haven't got, it may not come out. And the thing I've had is there's often a huge delay. So I think I've bought a couple of things and it just took about six months to a year longer than um, I thought. I've got Ubiome and Basis when they first went to crowdfunding. I don't know if Basis was crowdfunding or it was just pre-orders. Anyway, it was a pre-order and it took about a year and a half to get it or something. It was a long time, but I got it eventually and it Maybe it wasn't exactly what I wanted. But I, I think now the way I look, it's just, it really is kind of the bleeding edge. And if you want to play around with some of this stuff, I guess at the moment, you just got to consider that that's going to happen a lot. And you've got to do more due diligence, especially like we were talking about the markers and the lab test, the thing you, the surprise you had with the telomeres. I think that's like a pretty key thing, right? Because you could be getting useless data as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Until you know, like what, <laughs> I mean, and they wouldn't have told me that unless I asked them. And I think with regards to crowdfunding, I mean, I've met a lot of great people in this space with QS and biohacking. And if, if it's a company, if I think they're working on something cool and I'm happy to support them. But when there's something where it's a new technology or a new service and it's almost like, do you want to be the first? But does it mean being the first today? Or it's like you make that payment, that crowdfunding donation, and then you're like, all right, well, I'll see you in a year and a half or whatever. So it's almost like that through, I'd rather just be like, I'll wait a year and a half and then I'll pay $20 more for it. That's what I'm doing now. <laughs> Every time I catch myself going to click a crowdfund, I'm just like, look, why don't you just wait? You can buy it in a year when it's actually there. So yeah, that's kind of the way I'm looking at it these days. Um, I think it's from us tried and tested people. I don't know if everyone's going to start feeling in that way soon because there's a lot of these. There was one called the Amiga I was pretty excited about. I don't know if you saw that one. And it's, I don't think it's come out yet still because it tracks a few more things. Yeah, there's also one called um, Angel Sensor, which is an, they're basically creating a wearable, like a wrist-worn, almost like a basis, but it's open source. The entire platform is open source, so it has a bunch of sensors, and then you could build your own apps or build your own, you know, you can just grab the raw data. And so I was like, wow, this is cool. So I crowdfunded it, and then apparently they were sending out some updates a few months ago about it, but I haven't really, you know, I think it's one of those things where that they're like, oh, we will be coming out in March, and then they're going to be like, okay, we, are, we will be coming out in July. So I, I think it's going to come out at some point, but it's I crowdfunded that probably like well over a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago. I guess the other way we can look at it is this area is going to grow and we're helping if we contribute to crowdfunders, we're, we're helping it happen faster. Eventually, these wrinkles and this bleeding edge is going to start calming down as bigger companies get more in, involved and just the environment gets better for these devices as the market grows and so on. 
And we're kind of helping to fund the startup of that we're, we're contributing to these crowdfund campaigns and so on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, you know, and even from the technology standpoint, like you said, it's moving along so fast. This is what we call planned obsolescence. Like you, you buy something now that you, you already know in a year it's going to be smaller and better and faster. So you just want to have access to it. The analogy I use, uh, I'm a musician. So people that have like home studios and are into musician and musical equipment, they can go down this same kind of rabbit hole where they're buying more more gear, more expensive things. They're like, oh, if I get that microphone, I'm going to sound so much better. And, <laughs> and I see that happening with biohacking. I see people like this new gadget comes out or new tool and they think it's going to make them better in a certain way. But ultimately, it's up to them and their behavior, right, that's going to affect it. So I, I think sometimes we get too caught up in, in just the, the bright lights and, and shiny things. And, and I think there's always a simpler way to do it. Yeah, yeah. And even the lab tests, there's like tons and tons of lab tests you can get done. And they can be really specific and complicated. And sometimes it just takes some most basic ones to figure stuff out. And lab tests can start really racking up if you get to specialty tests. Uh, you can you can be paying thousands of dollars just for one lab and, and stuff like that. So you have to be kind of careful. That's what I've learned over time as well. I've spent a fortune in um, specialist labs. And sometimes I was tracking them too frequently and, and things like this. So we were talking about the cost benefit earlier. I had to really learn how to you know spend my money wisely when it comes to those things. So in terms of other people that you would recommend to talk about the practicalities, is there anyone else you've come across that, or like you that done a lot of this stuff in, in real life or other people that you've learned a lot from in this area who you think would be great people to talk to? You know, I've come across and met so many, so many awesome people over the last few years. Are you talking more about people that have some sort of public presence, whether they're blogs? Well, yeah, yeah. Somewhere other people could connect with them and find their stuff. And... Yeah. First place to look would be just going to the Quantified Self website, um, quantifiedself.com. And they'll, they tend to show like meetups all around the world and they film them. And so you'll see awesome, lots of great talks. And those will typically then link out to uh, that person's like if they have a, like a blog or a website or something where you can get more information on it. When I got started in all this, I think, you know, some of the early folks, you know, I was reading folks like Tim Ferriss, you know, Four Hour Body was like a big you know, sort of thing for me to kind of start peeling back all the layers of the onion. And Tim Ferriss is a good guy to follow. He still he still talks about different stuff he's doing here and there. Yeah, I was talking more from. I know he's got a podcast that deals with a lot of other things. Um, but I was talking phys- more just around the, when I got my start reading that book. And a lot of folks that are out there doing podcasts, they're branching out into other areas. Um, if you're talking just on the biohacking QS side, there's like one guy who is, who basically does nothing but talking about HRV. He's doing all sorts of like N equals one experiments around him, like understanding himself through like how does it, what, how do different things, um, how does HRV affect, how is it affected based on other parts of his life? That sounds cool. Do you know his name or we'll put it in the show notes afterwards? Yeah. Um, quantlafont.com. And I'd, I'd have to even look up the spelling of that. There's another guy, um, Constance in New York. He's got a blog called Measured Me. He's blogged on and off over the past few years. And the thing you'll see is different people tend to focus on certain areas. So I think he's more into like tracking mood and understanding emotions and, and, and those types of things versus other people that might be more getting into more of the biohacking, like getting into data or from the um, physiology standpoint of things. In terms of other just... Uh, like you're looking for, again, specific blog names or blogs or... Oh, whatever comes to mind. I mean, if, if that's kind of the ones that you, you've come across or if you have other examples, it's what we might be useful to the audience, basically, if they're interested to learn more about this kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think a great resources for communities um, type of understanding this more. I think, again, quantifiedself.com, they have forums, there's a community there, there's all in the Facebook group. I know Bulletproof Executive, so if you go to Bulletproof, is it bulletproofexec.com or... Right. So what we've been talking about is diet and his coffee today for example. 
Yeah, but there's a really, really active forum there that's all broken up by anything you can think of. If you want to talk about any little subtopic of biohacking, there's going to be some conversations in there because the community itself is sort of aggregated there. So I think, you know, beyond coffee, you can get into some really great conversations there. You know, and those are like the main places. I think, you know, look for meetups in your in your city or nearby. There's always going to be, you know, connect with other people that are like-minded. I know that's, for me, has been the greatest. When you meet people face-to-face, you, you, you build those relationships. Yeah. And as a conference, you mentioned you'd been to a few conferences. So you went to Quantified Self and did you go to the Bulletproof one? Yeah. So um, Quantified Self will do, they tend to do two conferences a year. They do one usually in the Bay Area. I think there's one this May. And then they'll do one in the fall in Europe, usually in Amsterdam. So that happens twice a year. And then the Bulletproof Biohacking Conference just happened a few months ago in LA. And so I'd been to the the first one was a couple of years ago where there was a group of maybe like 30, 40 people. It was really small. And this year it was probably like 400, 500 people. To me, it's it's not that like more people are into it. I think everyone's always kind of been into this stuff. I think they're just finding each other. Yeah, it does seem like that. And when you're talking about the forum on the Bulletproof exec site, there's a lot. I, I was looking at it a couple of days ago and there are some really heavy post threads, like with 10,000 or whatever posts or threads or whatever. It's got a lot of information in there now. It's been going for a few years. So yeah, like you said, there's a lot of information there and, and there's a lot, you can connect with a lot of different people there as well. But I have found like you that you know, at conferences, I connect with people more face-to-face. It's, it's a great way to um, meet people into this stuff as well. So you did mention your routine. So I wanted to ask you if you have some kind of routine, like daily routine about tracking metrics, like first thing in the morning or, or in the evening, or is there anything you kind of do every day, which you find useful in terms of tracking data or doing any of this stuff? Yeah, well, I would say on a daily basis, the trick is to allow as much of it to be passive as possible. So things like having some device that's collecting biometric data or having something in my home that can measure my indoor environment passively, just those types of things are happening. So I can always go back, even just your smartphone, it's tracking my position. So I can actually like map out where I've traveled throughout a day. You know, it's just collecting that data, whether or not I use it. But in terms of the morning routine today, for example, I woke up <laughs> So first thing I'm doing is part of my thyroid program is I have to check my morning temperature every morning. So I have a thermometer right next to my bed. So as soon as I wake up, I pop in the thermometer. I actually, I was using one of old school, like non, a non-mercury thermometer, but it was like a glass one. But now I moved to this uh, Kinsa, which like hooks to your smartphone so I can, and it takes it really fast. So instead of having that thermometer in your mouth for five minutes, you can just do it in like 30 seconds. So I do that. I get my temperature done. It's already in my phone. I don't have to write it down anywhere. Wow. That's a nice little hack. I didn't know you could Yeah. Do that. So it plugs. It's pretty cool. And then if I'm doing something like, um, we talked about HRV. So while I'm laying in bed, I have a dresser next to my bed. Um, I have a little, my polar chest strap and my phone's already there. I put on the chest strap. I do a three minute, just a reading. We talked about HRV and you want to see where you are in relation to your baseline. Yeah. Do you do the standing or the lying down? Lying down. Okay, cool. I try not to even, like when I wake up in the morning, I try not to even like shift. I just, you know, if I'm under the blankets or over the blankets, I don't change it. I just, I don't want to affect it. And then I get out of bed and I'll weigh myself because it's scales in the bathroom. Again, I have one of those Wythings uh, wireless scales. So it's automatically data is uploaded. You know, you don't have to think about it. Then if I'm doing any glucose related tracking, like I'm in a window where I was like, okay, yeah, this is the month I'm going to track again. I'll, I'll take a quick reading right then. And then throughout the day, I guess, depending on my schedule, um, in terms of what I would track, if I had blocked out time on a given day to work on any kind of like, we'll call it mind training. So it could be things like space repetition or dual end back, discussed any of that. These like pieces of software that help improve short-term memory or recall, things like that. Um, I'll, I'll use tools and do that for maybe 30 minutes. The trick is just finding the time to do that. 
Right. So me personally, I've gone through phases of in-back and also the luminosity. Right now, for instance, I don't do either. Have you done these in phases, like you'll do them for a while and then other times you're not doing them? Or has it just been a constant ongoing thing that you're doing? I would say more with the dual in-back. Uh, space repetition, I well, it comes down to what I'm studying with it. I've actually, uh, one of the things I'm sort of working on right now, it's more of a long-term experiment. I'm, I'm trying to get better at playing poker. So <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm trying to come up with ways like memorization techniques and try to become better at it. So I've been going through a lot of exercises and, and reading these books and doing these tests to try to take away any of the actual act of playing cards. It's the actual ability to build, you have to build your work, working memory up. Right, right. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I've, I've actually been looking at that stuff recently myself and starting to work on that. Like minds, like minds. Yeah. And then, for example, if you go to the gym or you're working out, you might just be tracking your heart rate or your, my workout itself. It's, it's still for me, it's either a notebook and a pen, just writing down the, what am I doing today? Or I type it into my phone. So are you still doing the body by science? We had Doug McGuff on a while back and I saw you were doing that as well. Are you still doing that or are you doing something a bit different now? So I started off doing this, that the body by science type of workouts. And then through that and through the sort of meeting folks in the biohacking space, I got connected with um, these folks that are doing a different type of training that's built off of what's called um, ISO extremes which is essentially these uh, mostly body weight type exercises where you're pulling into a position. Like, so the idea would be like you're, you have to stand, sit, do a wall sit where you, know, you basically go against a wall and you get down into a squat and you got to hold yourself there for like five minutes. But you're actually, what you're really doing though is you're pulling yourself, you're trying to pull yourself down, not hold yourself up. And so there's a whole bunch of workouts around that. It's, it's more neurological training. So it sounds like you're, you're really intensely holding the muscles. It's really intense effort. Yeah, I mean, we can have a whole other conversation about that stuff because it also involves like there's an electronic modality that it, you basically hook up these electrodes that are in very specific positions and in certain polarities that allow your muscles to um, eccentrically lengthen while you're doing these exercises, which because basically what you're doing is you're training your muscles, but you're also training your nervous system. And over time, it has like a lot of impacts, everything from reaction time and speed not, not just the physical benefits. Yeah, I find all that stuff awesome. <laughs> yeah, and, that, and that's, to me, that's more like the bleeding edge stuff because I actually like, I go to the gym with this stuff and they, you know, people look at me and everyone comes, you know, I always have someone coming up to me like, what is that? Why is that? Thing? <laughs> but, you know, and I have to like explain it and eventually like you start seeing the same people there. So they already like, then they leave you alone, but you always, right, right. You always get these funny looks. You know? Yeah, one time I was in Bangkok and I was doing this specific exercise and I actually came from the Body by Science guys, which is a very slow pull up of one minute. I don't know if you saw that before. Anyway, I was doing this one minute pull up and this guy came up to me and he came up to me at the start and he starts asking me, what are you doing? And I was in the middle of my exercise and it takes a lot of effort because it's really intense, right? And he wouldn't leave me alone. He kept like, tell me what you're doing. Literally for the whole minute. And afterwards, I was like, man, like seriously, I'm exercising. Yeah, I know it looks kind of different, but so it does look different anyway. You can be doing different. It does like kind of get people asking what, what the hell are you doing? You're looking a bit strange in the gym. Yeah, like I, like I was doing an exercise where I was, imagine doing a curl, like a, you have a curl bar. And let's assume you're at the top position. You have to slowly lower it from the top position down to all the way to the bottom. But you have, you have to do it over the course of five minutes. So people are looking at you like, what the heck? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's so hard, yeah, right? Yeah. It's, it's very similar to what I was talking about. It's just really, really hard um, in terms of mental. That's what I love about those things. Like you're talking about the neuromuscular part. You know, it's really charging your, your mental capacity. And you learn to push yourself way beyond where you start from. And it's just a mental game at first, I find. And so they've looked into benefits for concentration and things like that once you learn to push yourself further than you thought you go oh my great this has been such a great practical chat man this is i think the most practical chat we've ever had in terms of real life stuff people doing it every day so it's great to hear about your routine also like you know just because that's that's really useful to people like how could i implement this in, in my daily life 
If you were to uh, give someone one recommendation that you think would be useful for them in their use of data to make better decisions about their body's health, performance, longevity, what would that one thing be? Biggest recommendation. I would say don't let it become a hindrance. <laughs> like, meaning like, I think ultimately it's how you feel. It's one thing to say, I'm try- I have a goal and I'm trying to achieve something. How do I get there? But if you're, if you're going the opposite way and trying to understand your current state and what got you to that current state, I think as we talked about, figure out, is there a way to sort of do it without it becoming a burden? It's like saying even exercise, there's no such thing as bad exercise technically, as long as you don't hurt yourself. So I think people can overthink it and then instead of just starting to do it. So I think if, if you're just looking to improve, you know, your health, longevity, I mean, those are very different things, right? So I could give you a tip that's like diet based, right? I would say like cut out sugar or something. But I think for me, it's more like the mental state you're in to do it, right? You have, these are people that typically, they're already made the decision they want to do this. So start off and don't let it become a hindrance. Don't try to do 20 things at once. I mean, I don't know if that's a vague answer, but I was talking more like, I think there's a lot of information out there. I think you have to look at, you know, assess where you're at and what your goal is. Because I think health is a very general thing. Everybody wants that in longevity, but there might be some people who are, you know, looking for a performance-based improvement versus other people who are more focused on longevity. So I guess what you're saying is like, try and focus on what's really important to you to start with to keep it simpler. Yeah, I mean, I think people might even be like, coming at this from not from the standpoint of like, something's wrong with me, I need to fix it. It There might be people who are just like, I like where I'm at, I want to be better. Uh Uh-huh, right. Yeah. So, and I think it's a different, you know, that mental set, I think you're still striving to sort of become better, but I think you're just looking at it from a different angle. And the beauty of this is I think it's really like this long slope, right? We think of it as black and white, unhealthy, healthy, but it's really not. It's this long, long slope. And I think all of us can do better. You can push yourself up forever to be better and you can be quite good, like you're saying. Yeah. And I think people shouldn't just, they'll see something that doesn't look quite in line or and instead of like freaking out or stressing themselves out, if they feel okay, ultimately, I think that's the gut check you always have to take. It's like, how do you feel? And it could be physical, it could be mental, you know, maybe your stress is due to things like your job or relationships or friendships, you know, so the things that are outside of that. And so you're actually, your biohack itself might be like, improve your relationships. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, great point. Okay, so Bob, where would we find you? Where's your blog? And is there anywhere else you're hanging out online where we can find you and learn what you're up to? Yeah, I detail all of these happenings on my blog. It's at uh, quantifiedbob.com. So quantifiedbob.com. I have a Facebook page, Twitter account, all under Quantified Bob, uh, Google Plus as well, if you're into that. Where are you most active? Would it be the Twitter or? Uh, yeah, Twitter is the, the most active. I would, um, you know, and if you ever want to connect to my real life uh, person, <laughs> myself, it's just bobtroya.com. So B-O-B-T-R-O-I-A. Um, but I tend to split, I tend to keep more of this stuff on the other account just to separate that way. There's certain people who care about this that don't care about my business stuff. (laughs) So I I try to keep it, you know, but I don't, I, you know, it's very clear that I'm the same person, right? but I just split my conversations up. Yeah. That's cool. It seems like you're a pretty diverse person. I have fitness, music, entrepreneur, tech, you know, all this, all this stuff going on. Bob, it's been great to have you on the show with all this practical information. It's great for the audience at home. Thank you so much for making the time for it. Greg, thanks so much for having me. To get more of The Quantified Body, subscribe on iTunes or go to the website verquantifiedbody.net. That's T-H-E-Q-U-A-N-T-I-F-I-E-D-B-O-D-Y dot N-E-T. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, we are at twitter.com slash quantifiedbody. And on Facebook, we are at facebook.com forward slash quantifiedbodypodcast. 
If you've got feedback or requests for the show, you can email them to me at damien at thequantifiedbody.net. That's D-A-M-I-E-N at thequantifiedbody.net. Thanks for joining the show this week. See you next time.